your car, an oasis of solitude and privacy, or not? This is Andrea Mico, Privacy for Cars, and welcome to today's episodes of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 326 for May 29th. We've got a wonderful interview for you today. I've brought back Andrea Amico, who is from the company Privacy for Cars. We first talked to him almost two years ago now. It was September of 2021, and I've been wanting to get him back, and he was wanting to wait until he had this big announcement, and that is this wonderful new tool called the Vehicle Privacy Report, which we're going to talk about today, among other things. But the key thing to understand for this interview is that our cars today are chock full of sensors and computers, like multiple, plural, computers. And that modern cars, almost every one of them now, has a built-in cellular modem that is constantly in connection with the internet. So they are like smartphones on wheels, but it's not just even a regular smartphone. It's like a smartphone on steroids, because your car has apps in it now too, just like a smartphone does. And so obviously this has a lot of potential cool features, right? I mean, for one thing, it helps the cars manufacturers. They can collect some really good telematic data to learn how their cars are doing and, you know, try to see if there's any problems going on. You know, when, when I was at Cisco, we did this with DevOps. It, you know, I could keep track of all of our products that were out in the field and, and monitor them for systemic problems and things like that. It was very handy. It was really good for remote debugging. Uh, a lot of Fixes in cars today, uh, recalls are adjusted via software. They don't even need to, a mechanic, you know, to get in there with tools and make a physical adjustment on the vehicle. Yeah, sometimes they do, but a lot of times now things can be adjusted via software. And now that those cars are connected to the internet 24 seven through a cellular modem, you can actually download software updates to your vehicle and, and fix recalls for cars remotely. That's cool. I mean, that's a good thing. Also, you know, when you install the companion app from your car's manufacturer and you connect it to your vehicle, you can probably remotely unlock your car. Sometimes you can turn it on in the morning when on a cold winter morning. You can find your car if you forgot where you parked it. You can check those weird, you know, remote codes when that the light comes on and says a check engine. You know, you could probably now go to your car's app and find out what that really means. You can probably check your fuel level. You can be notified when you, you know, your next oil change is due. Obviously, there's a lot of good things that could come with this, but it also means that your vehicle is generating and collecting and probably sharing a ton of data about you, about your vehicle, even about people that are in your vehicle that are not you, the owner. So wouldn't it be nice to know, for example, which manufacturers and or car models are collecting the most data, what they're doing with that data, how secure that data is, if it's being monetized or shared, and if so, with whom? Most people don't think about this. And even if they did, there's really no way, no easy way anyway, for you to, to know what's going on. Where's the privacy policy for your car? When did you opt in to data collection? How did you opt in? How can you opt out? Honestly, these questions don't have great answers today. But Andrea Amico and his company, Privacy for Cars, is working really, really hard to change all of that for the better, for all of our benefit. So 
So really quickly, before we start the interview, a couple glossary items. We throw out the term petabyte. Uh, you may have heard the term, but you might not know what it is. A petabyte is 1,000 terabytes, and we should be mostly familiar with terabytes today. That's kind of the big number, uh, usually on hard drive storage sizes. And a terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. So a petabyte is a lot of information. We're going we're gonna to hear that number today. And also, we very quickly talk about an EDR, or an electronic data recorder. That is the little black box that is in your car. You may be familiar with the black box that is in airplanes that they use as forensic evidence after crashes or other malfunctions that might help figure out what happened. Your car has one of those too, but that's just one part, one small part of the, uh, the various places in your vehicle that are collecting and storing data. All right, we got a lot to talk about. Let's get to the interview with Andre Miko. Andre Amico is one of the nation's leading authorities on vehicle privacy and cybersecurity. He's also the founder of Privacy for Cars and the first and only privacy tech company focused on identifying challenges posed by vehicle data. Great to have you back on the show, Andre. How's it going? Uh, fantastic. Thank you for having me back. I, I hope that your audience have enjoyed the first episode. Please go back and listen to it again, maybe. Yes. And uh, uh, But we're adding a lot of new stuff in here. Yes, and we will get to get into that. Some really cool tools and stuff. So why don't you start by refreshing our memories a little bit? You know, tell us a little bit about privacy for cars and maybe catch us up. Like what's changed since the last time we spoke? Yeah, so we are still the only company um, that uh, deals with uh, creating solutions around privacy and security for data that your car specifically captures. Uh, we'll talk a lot about that. Uh, I'm sure today about what mm -hmm. data vehicles captures and what are the privacy and security implications of that. And we have continued to expand greatly in U.S. and Canada. We're entering into Europe, and uh, we just launched a fantastic free tool for consumers, mm -hmm. which is called the Vehicle Privacy Report. And if you go to vehicleprivacyreport.com, you can enter the VIN of your car, which is the unique identifiers through the windshield. You can find it's on your tablets, on your documents, mm -hmm. it's everywhere. And hopefully, you'll discover something you didn't know about your car. <laughs> All right, so we covered a lot of this stuff in the first time we talked, but I think it's good to go back over it. And things have, you know, things have been changing. I'm sure if anything, cars have become more connected and probably connecting more data. So what what sorts of personal data is collected by a modern car and why? Like what are the ostensible, ostensible reasons given for uh, the kind of information that's collected? And then finally, as a follow-up to that, what kind of privacy risks arise from the collection of this data? Like what what is it that you could learn about me by viewing all the data that my car collects? Yeah, the way I think about it is that there's two sources of data. One are the sensors in cars. Cars used to be very much mechanical. I know we still take them to the mechanic, but really we should, you know, today they're called text for a reason. Cars have become increasingly computerized. If you have followed, you know, the news of what cars are doing nowadays, there, there's a lot more stuff that they can do, right? There's a lot of talk about additional advanced features in infotainment, in driving and security, in autonomous vehicles, definitely mm -hmm. a lot of connectivity and a lot of other services, including, you know, recently there's a lot of talks about premium subscription services with vehicles. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, of course, now we're touching, you know, cars are becoming increasingly electric, which uh, creates a, a, an entire new host of situations. Yeah. Uh, and so, those sensors are multiplying, data collections of vehicles are multiplying, and exponentially so. Uh, at the same time, another thing happened, which is that about 
five, six years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that for some companies, companies that realized they were collecting all this data mainly for diagnostics, safety, uh, but then they realized this was a treasure trove <laughs> that, you know, hey, Facebook is making money out of data, why can't we, right? I think that was just about the, the going. Mm. And they had started to build monetization plans, not just manufacturing, but an entire ecosystem of hundreds of companies are, are feeding into that. And it is a little bit like Facebook because it's happening a little bit behind the back. And I don't think people mm. really understand the ramifications of data. So again, one is the, the source number one, the sensors in the cars. Source number two are the devices that we carry in our pockets, purse, or whatever else, and we connect to our cars. This is mainly smartphones, but, you know, my kids connect their tablet because mm. they, you know, daddy's playlist suck. That's just what it is, right? <laughs> so they want to listen to their own music. And as a consequence, when you connect your device, what people don't realize is that there's a lot of data that migrates from your phone or, you know, whatever else you connect into the car. Uh, the, the way those connections have been engineered and designed, we're already not built with privacy in mind. Mm. Um, they were built with, you know, originally for responsiveness. Why would I download your text messaging database? Well, because once it's stored in my infotainment system and it's in the clear, I don't have to decrypt it. It's uh, rapidly there. There's no lag. And mm. everything in automotive was originally built with, you know, it needs to be responsive because safety was a first priority. And then again, now we start to have all this data from your devices and people start to ask themselves, well, can we do anything with that? And so that has become another massive source that, again, I think most consumers really don't realize. Well, and you've you've called cars, modern cars, smartphones on wheels, because it's not just that they collect all this data, but they've now got cellular connections built in. In the old days, you'd get OnStar or whatever, and that was a for-pay service, and maybe it wasn't even installed unless you paid for it. Not, not true anymore. These cars are connected all the time, 24-7, even if you don't. You know, some of these things have subscription like hotspot services and things you can get. But whether you pay for that or not, they're there and they're transmitting data, right? Yeah. For many manufacturers, the connectivity is actually turned on at the factory, right? So the essentially when you pay a subscription for several players, it is essentially you're subsidizing their pre-existing data plan. There are some examples in which an active subscription actually triggers a lot of other different ways in which data is is connected. So I always hate generalizing, but by and large, you're, you know, mostly accurate. Hmm. Now, I've been curious, since we've got these, you know, always on connections, how always on are they? Like, are these cellular connections operating when my car is off? Like, for example, how does it get software updates? Does it, does that happen? I know it happens over the air now, but does it only happen when the car is on? Well, so great, great question. You know, not a lot of transparency on this stuff mm. uh, and, uh, and hard to generalize, but uh, I'm sure there are some owners of some electric vehicles that may notice that they wake up and they turn on the car and the car looks different because it has a new system because over the night the system did update, right? You didn't turn on the car, so, you know, draw your own conclusions. And by the way, doing over-the-air updates, I think there's a lot of really good reasons mm -hmm. for that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. imagine your, if your computer didn't have over-the-air updates, how do you get your patches? I mean, we go back to the old days in which you had to go and browse online and find, you know, go to two cows. See, yeah, that tells you how old I am. You go to two cows, uh -huh. you download the patch of the driver and install it in the car. That clearly wouldn't work. So over-the-air updates, I think, are a great thing for consumers. It allows to patch security. 
it allows to launch new services then when they're transparent and there are choice to consumer. I think it's a great option too, but it is also possible that stuff changes without you knowing. And there may be mm-hmm. something that maybe you would want to know or that you, you know, maybe the law in some places tell you that you should really know, and maybe it's not quite happening. And so let's talk a little bit about what, I mean, uh, people think that, oh, you know, what, what can my car really know about me? And it, we, but I mean, there's so many sensors in a car today and they're for weird things. Like the passenger airbag is, is triggered whether or not there's something in sitting in that, in that seat and how much that thing weighs. Like, is it just a, is it just your backpack that's sitting in there or is it a human? So they need to know like the weight of the person in the passenger. So there are, there are weird sensors you wouldn't think about whether the car doors are open or not, uh, what your braking is like. Uh, your location, because if it's got the cell phone thing, it's got your location. So there's there's all these sensors in a car that is used for you know telemetry and things that the car needs, but it could also, I would think, have all sorts of privacy implications, if nothing else, like your location data. So what kind of privacy concerns do I need to worry about with the with the types of data that just the car is collecting naturally? Yeah, so the way we try to communicate this to consumers on the vehicle privacy report is that we flag five types of data that cars routinely collect. And these are identifiers. Uh, so all sorts of data that is, you know, re- be, that can be reconducted to you as an individual. Um, number two is your uh, biometrics. Uh, this may include voice and video recordings. In certain cases, disclosure again of different manufacturer by manufacturer. The third category is geolocation, as you said perfectly, you know, many cars track where you go all the time. The next one is synced phones or sync devices, as we were saying just a, a minute ago. And then lastly, user profiles. And this is anything from your preferences, where's the seat position, to pick a, a silly example, to your micro behavior on how you accelerate and brake, which by the way is, uh, I'm sure your audience knows, you can use that to identify people too, right? So mm-hmm. for example, you can re-identify people the way they type or they move a mouse and you can do the same type, it's called fingerprinting, actually with driver behavior. And so the more data you collect from more sensors, you put it together, even when you claim the data was anonymized, just by having so much data about how one is acting inside the vehicle, actually end up with identifiable data. Well, you mentioned EVs, electrical vehicles, and I've got some particular questions about that because I'm actually looking, I'm in the market for one right now. And so I've been looking at them and I I can't help but wonder if there's extra data issues with them. Because for example, when you charge an electric vehicle, it's like a USB cord on your phone now. There's actually not just power, there's data lines in there as well. So it identifies your car. You don't have to necessarily pay on some of these things because it knows who you are because it it talks to your car and your car either has an account or it doesn't. And so it is exchanging data. It's not just transferring power. So are, are there any particular data worries with EVs that are beyond what was privacy issues with a regular car? Well, one, they are very advanced vehicles, right? So you end up with the, the latest version of technology, which as we talked about before, it means you have a lot of extra sensors and a lot of extra data collection, you know, so start with that. The other thing that you should be bearing in mind is you're correct. The, the network where you go in charge is an intelligent network. It's not just the, the plug in, in your house. Mm. And there are a number of very well-known security concerns. And unfortunately, we start to see actually attacks in the wild. I don't know if you realize this, but, you know, very famously, there was a, 
an attack on the charging stations in Russia performed by the, the Ukrainian forces. There was an attack in Ukraine performed by, by yeah. the Russian operatives, right? And so it's yet another node of infrastructure that can be attacked. And since it's attached to really critical, another piece of critical infrastructure, right? Transportation is already a critical infrastructure, but then it's attached to the grid. And in fact, there's been a number of research, the researchers that focus on the ability to put charge back from the car and create an overload into the grid, which can potentially bring the grid down. So, you know, there are a lot of security concerns, uh, but sticking to privacy, yes, your, you know, your credit card is attached to your identifier of your car. And that's how you, you know, the charging station knows it's you and charge your credit card. Or as we heard a number of times, if you just bought a used uh, EV, the old owner's credit card may still be attached mm. to it. So you may actually enjoy one or two charges <laughs> on somebody else's credit card because manufacturers are not super fast in disconnecting those accounts and reconnecting those accounts. And some of these EVs do not have a dealer network that can actually help you out. And so consumers are a little bit clueless and, you know, they don't have really a resource they can go to that can help them out in a timely fashion. Well, something else that a lot of the modern cars have is cameras all over the place. And, and some, you, you can think of cameras on the outside, like for blind spot. That's great. I have those in my car. Those are wonderful. But a lot of them now have cameras inside as well, because on some of the driverless features, like when you're on the highway and you can go hands-free for a little bit, or they've got these weird rules now that it's not fully autonomous, even though Tesla claims that it's full self-driving or whatever. Uh, but you can let your hands go for a little while, but they have cameras on the inside looking at you to see if you're paying attention. So now there's video cameras inside and outside of your car. There was a case recently where Tesla was, and maybe you could tell us about that because it's classic or will be classic, where Tesla was caught capturing video of people in their garages. Yeah, well, so the story is a supplier to Tesla that uh, analyzes these data feeds some of those employees allegedly were sharing videos of anything from people having sex in cars to, you know, really gory stuff like, you know, people being hit by cars in accidents, including <laughs> children. So it, it just, just really bad, right? On top of that, I think that the second layer of bad is that Tesla actually had said that in the past that the, all the data, all the video feeds from sentry mode uh, which is what is called that, you know, you can turn essentially your, your car into a closed circuit camera to you park in front of your grocery store. Somebody bumps into your car. You can actually go back and see the footage, hmm. right? So Tesla said and adamantly said, you know, don't worry owners because the, the video in sentry mode is there. And, you know, I just wonder if that's one of those. It's technically true, but it's fundamentally misleading. Because maybe in sentry mode, it is what it does, it's sort of locally, but there's another mode in which, you know, Tesla can remote into your camera and can see it because that's obviously what happened, right, with this, with this specific, uh, with this specific story. But this is not just Tesla, right? I mean, cars, as you pointed out, have increasingly put cameras and microphones, by the way, in cars, mm. and they come in a very wide range of flavors. Some are just like literally a playing camera, typically looking at the back seat, making sure you have not forgotten your child. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those suppliers also say, oh, by the way, we can monitor if somebody is smoking inside the car. And so, you know, that would affect the value of your car. Or if you're renting, maybe you get fined for it, right? 
you know, your audience can decide whether this is good or bad, but, you know, for sure, that's something that probably people don't know that they're being monitored what they do. Or, you know, you may forget a purse or you may detect certain objects. Well, you know, if they're telling me I forgot my, you know, my wife forgot the purse, probably she'll appreciate a call from her telling her, hey, we know that you forgot the purse. But if you're detecting objects and then you're profiling me based on what objects do I carry with me? And, mm. you know, again, the problem is what you do with the data. Technology is wonderful in depending on the type of applications or, you know, not so much in other types of applications. And there's very little transparency, which is part of the, you know, what we're trying to, to solve here. But there's a very famous company out there, and their 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 name is uh, uh, Mobileye. So Mobileye was actually spun off by um, Intel. Um, and if you look at your car, if you bought a car in the last, uh, I would say, six or seven years, if you look at your car from the outside, where the rear view mirror is, and you see a triangular slot or two triangular slots, that's most likely a Mobileye system. Hmm. And I was list- listening to a podcast recently of the CEO of, of Mobileye, and he was bragging that they have collected 400 petabytes of data and video from those cameras. Oh, wow. And then since they were trying to go public, I pulled the, the filing from the SEC, the, you know, the Security mm-hmm. and Exchange Commission, because you need to disclose a lot of things. And it turns out that they actually make some disclosure about this data and what they do with it. So, for instance, one of the applications that disclosing there is that they track license plates. So mm-hmm. it turns out that there are, I don't know how many tens of millions of cars out there. There are essentially, you know, license plate readers on wheels. Wow. And it's disclosing the SEC documents. And again, it says it's for research, but then there's no really clear explanation of what are the limits of what the data for research can be used for. And, and I think that these are the kind of things that we uncovered that nobody's looking at. And that I think if more people knew about, maybe the world will be a little bit different. All right. So let's talk about who who can access the data that's stored or generated by my car. Who's supposed to? Like the, the manufacturer, maybe a licensed repair shop. And then if I wanted to see what my car was generating, if I wanted to see what gener- what you know what my car is giving up, can I look at my own data in any easy way? Oh boy. Okay. So let's start from the from from the beginning, right? So think of it like your smartphone or your laptop, right? So data really is in two places. One is it's physically residing on your smartphone or your laptop. And two, if it's connected throughout its life, this data will have flown out of it. And now it's uh, in the cloud, which means somebody else's database, right? Mm -hmm. So let's start with the first piece, right? Because essentially all recent cars made in the last 15 to 20 years have this problem, that they collect the data, as we said, from the sensors and from the phones of people, if anybody ever connected to Bluetooth or USB or whatever. And this data is there. And it's typically unencrypted. Um, and anybody can tap into it. In fact, you know, four years ago, I taught my daughter, back then she was eight years old, how to hack into mama's car to read the text <laughs> messages, which, uh, again, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's good parenting. I think it's good to, you know, but, but it was a little bit of a, of, of a, you know, a demonstration because so many people were pushing back in the industry on, well, it must be really difficult. I mean, I can see that mom's phone is connected, but, you know, 
who can possibly go and read this stuff? And the answer was, well, my eight-year-old daughter can do that. So, you know, not to mention there's a lot of, of course, much more advanced tools in the hands mm -hmm. of, you know, government and, and uh, law enforcement, but also your average insurance investigator, right? Mm -hmm. um, you get into an accident, uh, you settle a claim with the insurance. Well, people don't realize that that vehicle now belongs to the insurance company. And the law says they have all the rights to extract whatever data because the data comes with the owner. The data is stored in the mm -hmm. car comes with the owner. It's the property of the physical owner of the car. And so your insurance company could decide, you know what, I'm going to take out the data and decide if, you know, uh, you were doing something maybe not was not quite at par with our policy, which again, is something I think most people don't, don't understand. Now, let me, you know, second part is, you know, once your vehicle is connected, it goes to a lot of places. Again, hard to generalize. I can tell you we keep track of literally hundreds of companies that receive data. In fact, you know, your, your timing is perfect because just this week, the CEO of Geico claimed that for 90% of their auto policy holders, they have a file that comes from telematic data. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean that the data goes real time from you to Geico, okay? It may mean that your previous vehicle, they had collected data because it was actually coming from data that was downloaded in the service bay because the manufacturer collected it or your repairer collected it and sold it to a data broker who eventually sold it <laughs> to Geico. But, you know, the truth is that or the claim from the CEO of Geico is 90% of the people with a insurance policy we have a file on them with data that came from their car. Wow. And, and you know, I, I don't know how any other company, you know, ranks a stack versus that. There's other insurance companies being very vocal about wanting to push the envelopes on how much data to collect from cars and to be able to build better risk models. And again, this is not, you know, 100% guaranteed everything is bad, right? I mean, reality is that there are many consumers that choose to give their data to their insur insurance because it lowers the rate, especially if you have a young driver in the house. And again, mm -hmm. if it's done with the consent of people, it's totally cool. But I, you know, I, it was a shocking statistic to me because I never thought that a CEO of a large company like Geico would say 90% of the consumers who actually have a file with data from their car. That, that shocked me, and I've been doing this for quite a while. <laughs> Your last question was, if I want to know what data is in my car, how do I know that? Uh, that's tricky. I think the first piece of advice I will tell you is move to, the, the, to Europe and become a European citizen because <laughs> they have a lot more rights. Uh, right. but, but, but barring that, there's a handful of states where, in theory, you can go and can request a copy of your data. And by a handful, I think we're really talking about, uh, you know, two fingers right now. So, you know, not so much uh, a handful, but it's growing. But reality is that we have done the exercise of filing literally thousands of data. These are called data subject requests, just so you know, in the, you know, in the law. Mm -hmm. And we, we, in, in our case, we were not asking for a copy of the data, but we're simply asking for, you know, deletion of data and, confirming whether they had data in the first place and whether they claim that data was anonymized or not. So the law says that companies must respond within 45 days. Two-thirds of the companies we contacted never responded. And of the remainder, the very vast majority claimed that the data they had was anonymized and considered they didn't have to respond. Wow. 
All right. So you touched on a couple of these things, but I want to make sure that people are aware when you say who owns this data and it goes with the owner of the car, most people think, okay, well, I bought a car, so I own the car. So while I have it, then I kind of own the data. Then if I ever sell the car, okay, then maybe I can understand that, you know, the data, if I don't erase it, will go with the car. But there's other murky situations, right? I mean, there's rental cars, there's fleet cars. If you've got a company car, maybe you're a police officer or a UPS driver and you're hooking your phone up to your vehicle. You don't, if it's taking data off your phone, you don't own that data. And then there are the cases you talk about, like in an accident where you did own the car, but now that it's totaled, part of, you know, when you get the check from your insurance company for here's the value of the, of this piece of trash that you can no longer drive, you now no longer own that car, or it might be repossessed if you don't make your, if, if you don't make your payments, right? There's all sorts of weird situations where ownership is not clear. Yes, and all those situations, I'm sure you're shocked to hear, are really not spelled out in a super clear way in the law, right? So there are there is only one law in the United States at the federal level about data and cars, and that is narrowly about one of the about a hundred computers that are in in a car, right? So it's the the the, the black box or the EDR electronic data recorder. So that's the only one electronic control unit that is very clearly regulated, very specifically for cars. Everything else falls under general data security laws and data privacy laws and data breach laws, etc. And, and, and as a consequence, some companies are embracing the desire and will to protect consumers, and they're actually taking good steps. I'm, and I'm very happy that you know a growing amount of companies are doing that. There's a number of companies that don't, and that typically happens either because they don't know it. Frankly, this is still, you know, we think we've been talking about this for a long time and to a lot of people, but it is still a niche concept. And that was part of the reason why we wanted to launch, you know, Beacon Privacy Report to kind of take this topic out of the shadows. And there are some companies that uh, they know, but they haven't made it a priority. And so, and so, you know, your data is, is out there, whether it's stored in the cars, more than four out of five cars are resold with the data of the previous owners in it. Almost all the rental cars have data of one or multiple people in it. And that's just the ugly reality of what it is. And then again, when you look at the connected vehicles, there's a entire other host of issues related to change of ownerships. It is. I think you'll find it hard to believe, but it's extremely common that you sell your car. You may have agreed somewhere in your paperwork that you have consented to some sort of data, but then nobody really tells the manufacturer that there's been a change of ownership. You buy a used car. You believe you've, you've never seen a document. You never consented to anything. And uh, a bunch, literally all these hundreds of companies we were talking about before, they keep collecting data from the vehicle assuming that the old consent is still in place. Mm-hmm. Just as you can imagine, it's problematic for consumers, but it's also problematic for companies because, you know, the legalities of this collection, I think there, you know, I think there's some questions around that. And so, you know, I, I, I think that these are growth pains to the fact that connected vehicles have been around in theory for 20 years, but they're still very new. There's a lot of excitement about building you know, new business models, and I'm sure you're hearing increasingly the expression that the software-defined vehicle, and, you know, they're literally trying to turn them into your laptop, right, and run a bunch of service mm-hmm. on it. Um, mm-hmm. But we do know perfectly with, lap, you know, if you have a laptop, I don't know how many of your readers do not have 
you know, automatic updates on, uh, you probably have a firewall, you probably have an antivirus, you probably have, you know, you, you have put stuff in it to protect mm-hmm. it. And that stuff is not there with cars. Well, another thing, just as we were talking about, I was thinking about leasing as well, because I've actually, I don't usually lease, I usually buy, but if you lease a car, you don't own your vehicle. <laughs> Somebody, right? You're, you're leasing it. Someone else is, is the owner of that vehicle. So I would think that would, that would muddy the data ownership. Yeah. And I don't well. want to get into the leasing technicalities of open leases versus closed leases or whatever else. But yes. And, uh, if you don't make a payment, the, the, the title is still in the hands of the auto finance companies and technically it's their, their asset. Car rental. Maybe he's gone down because after COVID, we maybe we're not traveling as much from the company dime anymore. But I mean, that's if you get into a, a rented vehicle, you can always look in there and see the contacts of the people that were in there before you because they, they didn't clean them out. Yeah. So one more aspect of this that we haven't talked about yet is, and that is a lot of sm- these cars are almost like smart cars, right? They're they're IoT devices on wheels as well. And a lot of these companies want you to download and install their manufacturer app. And like, for instance, my mother bought a Toyota and the the salesman was really big. Oh, you've got to install the Toyota app on Mm -hmm. your phone. Obviously, I'm sure there's some pros to that, right? I'm sure you could look at your fuel level. I'm sure, you you know, maybe you could start your car remotely or unlock it, maybe where it is in the parking lot. I'm sure there are features that would be beneficial to you to have this. But a lot of apps are really bad about privacy as well do we how worrisome are these apps do we do we know for a fact that these card manufacturer apps are collecting data and monetizing that data so there is zero doubt about that because if you read the privacy policies you can absolutely understand that you know apps do collect a lot of data and you know now you can augment what you know about a customer inside the vehicle with what you know about outside the vehicle right if i place a pin on when i'm parked and then I want to be reminded, you have your GPS on, uh, it is quite possible, and again, uh, very hard to know on an individual app-by-app basis, but it's entirely possible that they'll know that you're walking into the mall and where you're shopping and all this kind of stuff until you come back to your car, right? So, as you pointed out, salespeople are very often incentivized to get consumers connected. And frankly, I will tell you, that is probably not a bad idea if you buy either a new or a used car to actually do connect to the apps of the, of, of the manufacturer. And the reason is because somebody else may have connected to the car with their app. We have done an experiment mm-hmm. three years ago where with, uh, you know, anything from just being in a car for a couple of minutes to very light touch social engineering, we managed to connect, you know, I had at a certain point, tens of vehicles that I could access, locate, unlock and start on my phone. Oh, wow. Um, and, hmm. you know, of course, responsibly disclosed that to manufacturers. I think at the time I was told there was not a hack because it was done through social engineering, which of course, you know, I think mm-hmm. that today we think about those things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a, there's a very, you know, there's a number of cases being on, you know, interviewed on several cases in which Somebody, show, you know, somebody turns on their phone months after they sold their car and they can still see where it is and, you know, where it's going and unlock it and start hmm. it, et cetera. And the new owner had no idea. So my suggestion to your, 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 your listeners is if you are your, the car you own right now, if it has a mobile app or if you're planning to buy a car, yeah, I would suggest go and download the app. 
authenticating to it, register, claim that you're the new owner because that process will typically boot out the old the old people, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't work exactly the same way for every single manufacturer. But you know, in general speaking, it's a good mm-hmm. idea. And then if you don't like it, don't delete the app. There's a process you need to go through inside the app to say, you know, I want to deauthenticate and turn off the service. If you just delete the app, your account in the very vast majority of cases will actually remain active, which again will create problems to you in the future whenever you decide to sell the car, because you'll not remember by then, I promise you, because nobody does. Oh, that that's very interesting. That's something we call planning your flag, right? I mean, there, there are accounts that exist whether you do it, because the account exists with the car. And so you the, want the to claim that account. It was created when the, somebody bought the car the first time. And by the way, Sometimes, because again, we've done tests, right? You can go and test drive a car and you can hook up your, your phone to it. You never bought the car, but you're now you're digitally attached to it. You have a digital umbilical cord that goes from your phone to the dashboard of the car. And people at the dealerships have no idea. Future buyers have no idea. In fact, I think you know that we work with a number of dealerships. Mm-hmm. We help some dealerships recover stolen cars. And, and, and it turns out that, you know, that's what was happening, that people were coming with fake IDs to the dealership. They would test drive. They would get an extended test drive. During the extended test drive, they would have hook up their phone to the car. Then they oh, return wow. and say, well, ah, thanks, nothing. I, I don't want to buy it. And then hmm. you come back, you know, days or months later and you steal it because you know what you have in your pocket is essentially another set of keys okay so (laughs) so there's a lot of data being collected a lot of being shared can we opt out of this collection and for that matter when and how did we opt in like in europe you would have to opt in but where was the privacy policy did it flash on the entertainment system screen as i first powered up the car and I clicked okay. I mean, oh, there's a, there's so many variations of this. I th- I, we start to see now in newer cars, some of them have buried somewhere in the menus, you know, a uh, privacy policy link. We have taken some photos of those. They don't seem to be matching the documents online. So I'm, I'm really not sure what's going on there. Some of them are much more explicit, right? When, when, when you turn on the card, it'll tell you, oh, let me remind you, you have agreed to the terms and privacy policy, right? And mm-hmm. you do the same thing that you do with every other pop-up that happens in your life, which is you click OK and you move mm-hmm. on with your life, right? Most commonly, what happens is that somewhere in the paperwork when you bought the vehicle, there is a disclosure that says you are agreeing to the privacy policy and the terms, right? And, and that's what we wanted to do again with vehicle privacy report is to take those disclosures that are really not disclosed, they're buried in a bunch of legalese, and make them visible and digestible. So just so you know, the average privacy policy in terms for a car, you will need to spend two and a half hours <laughs> to read those documents. So people are already complaining, right, that when they spend an hour at the dealership to buy the car. <laughs> now imagine, right, as you're ready to go and put the last signature, the ball. Dear customer, hold on a second. Make yourself comfortable for two and a half hours <laughs> while we explain to you the, the, the policies and the terms. Right? So that, that's really not, not viable. And by the way, it's typically written in very difficult language, meaning sure. that the level of education you need to have is very high and does not match the level of education of the general population, which are the buyers of, of cars. Um, in fact, what, I, I think it's interesting that many states mandate that for 
auto insurance policies, the text of the auto insurance companies must be read. Like you need to have the proficiency of a 15-year-old to be able to read it and understand it. Why? Because you start to drive a car when you're 15, right? Uh, it clearly pre-realized pre- many, many states of 16, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those obligations, of course, don't exist for the privacy policy in the terms of the cars. Mm-hmm. No, do, do not exist for any of the services like Sirius XM, right, or whatever else. And so you end up with these very, very complex documents. And that's why we thought that the right thing to do was to create this privacy labeling system in which we try to explain to consumers in 10 icons that are standardized what is the high-level picture? And all of them are clickable so that you can drill down, get to read what are the specific quotes from some of these documents. So you can read for yourself what is it that the manufacturer of the vehicle was saying about that specific category. And and then, you know, we link all the documents in the same place. Because if you want to actually read the whole thing, you can, and I would argue maybe you should, but those documents sometimes are not that easy to find. So putting oh, them sure. all in one place, at the very least, we're shortening your research. So, okay, so how do I opt out? Or how much of this can I opt out of? How much, in your experience, how, you know, if I go through the entertainment system, or well, they, then that's the next question is, how do I opt out? Is it through, like, the, the infotainment so, system in the car? Do I have to do it from the app on the phone? How well, do so I opt let out? Let me ask you, in the last three questions, have you moved to Europe? And have you got a European passport? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, so, you know, um, Though we again, have European listeners, so let's let's bring them into. Uh, yeah, European listeners, uh, let's, uh, they have a lot more rights, right? Uh, first of all, you should be asked to opt in. I don't think that's really happening, but mm. you know that's what the law says that you should be able to opt in, which clearly gives you a leg up in case of you want to take action because you actually have the rights to you know know what's going on. You can get a complete copy of your data, you get to get a complete list of of companies that this data is being shared with, and of course you get to opt out for anything that is not necessary. That stuff takes a very, very big effort. So if you're mm. retired, that is a <laughs> fun activity to do. We are, you know, we actually do this for free for consumers because we like to learn this kind of stuff. And so if you come to Privacy for Cars, there's a button on the top right that says assert your data rights and there's two buttons in there one is for california residents and european citizens and the other one is for everybody else and everybody <laughs> else just brace yourself because you know you may you may not get a lot but we'll try to get as much as we can wow okay so but if i'm doing it on my own like where do where do they hide these options is it through do i have to do it through the app on the phone do i do it through a website do i do it through the infotainment system or what uh, uh, I hate to be absolute, but I think that the only effective way is to actually arm yourself with pen and paper mm. and send a, a document to the legal offices of the manufacturers, <laughs> the service providers, uh, etc. And by pen and paper, you know, I also mean email, but uh, email the, the response rate on, on email is uh, is lower. Uh, this is a task. It's a mm. task. Like you need to really want to do this today. I, I'm sorry. I'm sure that that's not the answer that either you or your listeners really want to get. But this stuff is not easy, and I'm sure everybody's shocked to hear that subscribing and you know opting into this stuff is immediately easy because mm-hmm. it happened when you bought the car. Uh, but saying no that requires time, money, and an effort. It's just a lot of effort. 
I do like that some of the privacy uh, legislation that has been coming up for review now includes language like it's got to be just as easy to opt out it is adopt in invite you know it's got to if you could do it with one click to get in you could do it with one click to get out because they they use those dark patterns they use those techniques to, like gym memberships right it's, it's the classic thing it's really easy to get it's really hard to get out of and they've and so they've they're addressing that in some of the language of some of the legislation uh yes and i think that the big question is going to be well if i didn't pay you know 9.99 a month for something, but I'm just paying with my data, does it count under legislation or not? I think all the drafts I've seen are pretty gray. Hmm. And so that's that's something that I think legislators should be keeping in mind that, you know, if I if, I may not be paying with a check, but I, if I'm paying with my data, I think that you should have the rights to say no. Yeah. All right. So now I, I want to talk about some potential solutions and and this leads to another question i've i've had and something i've i've been wanting for a long time in my vehicle that i want to make is absolutely there on my next vehicle is carplay apple's carplay and apple for whether you believe it or not does seem to be doing a better job with privacy than other companies google for example and auto you know android autoplay would be the obviously counterexample but Car manufacturers also have their own built-in infotainment systems as well. If I'm using something like Apple's CarPlay, is that insulating me from data collection? Is it is it's because I'm working with Apple and therefore the manufacturer doesn't get access to my contacts and things like that from my phone? Yeah, no, not really. I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> it doesn't work. Anymore. So think about it this way, right? Without Apple CarPlay or Google Android Auto, you had a connection between your phone and your car and data was migrating in there. And then from there, potentially could migrate somewhere else through the telemap individual connectivity of the car. And sometimes cars actually leverage the connectivity of your phone. So they use your phone essentially as a modem to transmit it out. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you introduce a new player to that, it doesn't do anything but adding, you know, mm. to the, to, to the attack surface here. Right. So, Apple is actually very, there's very little transparency on what Apple does with data from Apple CarPlay. Hmm. I haven't reviewed in the privacy policy in a while, but the last time I did it, there's a section for iTunes, there's a section for whatever, right? The apps, whatever. There's no section for Apple CarPlay, hmm. which I find puzzling, honestly. Mm -hmm. But again, I haven't reviewed in a while, so maybe things have changed. So I would just encourage your, you know, your audience to go and check for themselves. For Google, we know what the answer is, which <laughs> is that, you know, uh, there are actually two products from Google that matter with, with vehicles. One is Android Auto, which I think everybody knows because if you have a Android phone and you plug it in, you have this screen mirroring technology, mm -hmm. right? So that's one. There's another product that is called Automotive Android, hmm. which confusingly sounds the same, but actually it's not. It's a middleware for infotainment systems. Hmm. Okay? And the rumor in the street is that Google started to give this away essentially for free to manufacturers, telling them it was going to be so much easier to program stuff in there. It will be not naturally compatible with Google Maps and their store and, you know, all these kind of wonderful things. And I think that, you know, some other people may instead say that this reminds them a lot of the early days of Windows saying, oh, we have a free browser and, you know, and, and we all know how that, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, ended up in the course with antitrust, et cetera. But, you know, that hasn't happened with, uh, with, with this thing. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But, you know, reality is that Google will collect data from you and from your car. 
And often I have, you know, discussions with people who say, well, you know, I already have my phone. It's an Android phone. Google already knows everything about me. <laughs> what else could they possibly know? Okay. <laughs> oh, I started to say, well, you know, they know the VIN number of your car. They know the mileage of your car. They know the speed at which you're going, not through the GPS, which is very approximate. It's actually much more sensitive through the through the device. Hmm. Uh, they can get, you know, they actually can do micro location. So the GPS, I'm sure you know that there's a a, a radius of uncertainty that mm-hmm. depends on, you know, the the strength of the and how many satellites you get to see at a certain point. But with cars, you can actually use the steering, the acceleration, the braking to micro position you within inches, not, you know, several feet, right? And so all these micro positions, as you can imagine, has actually a lot of potential value, especially if you start to think about, you know, potential application like autonomous driving, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, long story short, we have not been able to see a raw data feed from Google, um, from Google's Android Auto, but it is pretty well known in the industry that Google will collect more than 120 data points per second, or at least they can. And that's in addition to what they already know from your phone, right? So this is a perfect example, one plus one equal three, because you had the data from, you know, the Google now knows more because they knew everything about you on the phone plus everything from the car. So they augmented their data set. The manufacturer knows everything they had from the car, but now they get to know some stuff from Google. Do this, right? If you have Android Auto, punch in a destination, okay? Mm-hmm. And you will see if your history is on that this history will appear on your phone. But also, if you punch in something in your phone, next time you go in your car, it's going to be there, hmm. right? So now both parties get to know stuff that they didn't know about before. Right. And as more and more services come into this connected, you know, software defined vehicle, expect that to happen on steroids. Lovely. Okay, so I'm in the market for a car. I want to get a car, yeah. and now now that I know all these things, I want to know which cars you are better. Look really good in a, in a 1964 Corvette. You know, Ooh, I, I, know I that, would. But. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really tempting, actually. Uh, given what we've what we've said so far, uh, that's probably far back enough. Uh, so if I'm if I'm in the market for a car, new or used. And, and we'll talk about your tools specifically next, but just generally speaking, given all the privacy policies you've looked at and the, the various makes and models you've looked at, are there any that are better than others specifically when it comes to privacy? And is there like a certain year when these modems started being installed? Like, is, like if I want to go old school and get me a car, like it's like it's hard to find a dumb, a, a dumb TV these days. Every TV is smart. Yeah. Now, I just don't plug mine into the Internet. Uh, right. But, you have that option, which you really don't have with cars, right? Correct. Yes. Um, so if I'm shopping for a car and I, and I want to take privacy into consideration, what makes or models or years should I be looking at? Well, so look, OBD2 port became mandatory in 1996. And that's onboard that's diagnostic, OBD, I'm, yeah? Yes, I'm sorry. So that that, that thing looks like a, a an old school TV plug Mm-hmm. Uh, or an old uh, SCSI port, like the kind of wide, yeah, yeah, parallel, yeah, yeah, parallel yeah, port. yeah, that is sitting under the typically under the steering wheel or somewhere, you know, somewhere down there uh, that your tech plugs into when you take your car because your engine light on. That's the OBD2 port. Mm-hmm. All cars after mid after 1996 must have it. Okay, mm-hmm. so that means that the electronics are now running through a central network and you can harvest through the OBD2 port. Um, the first cars with navigations actually they're just about the same date. 
Bluetooth started to appear in cars in 2001. So if you want to go to school, you got to go to school. Old, okay? okay, all right. But let's be practical, right? So the reason why we have, in the Vehicle Privacy Report, we created three categories of cars. Cars that are hard drives on wheels, cars that are former or disconnected smartphone on wheels, and cars that are smartphones on wheels, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and I think that these are three good big categories if you think about, you know, what's what's out there. So hard drive on wheels essentially means the data is locally resident, and you need to tap, physically tap into the car to, to get it out, okay? okay? The next version is... Many cars had connectivity, but those internal modems and smart cars were 1G to G, 3G. What Americans don't realize is that the biggest gift to privacy in vehicles happened last November when 3G networks were taken out of commission. Right, right. So all those cars are like an old flip phone, right? They used to be connected. Data, you know, until November, your data may have been collected. It's maybe somewhere. But as of November of last year, they're dead. Interesting. In terms of connectivity. Okay. Okay. And then there's the current stuff, right? What we call smartphone on, fi- smartphone on wheels, which really the automotive industry says that vehicles have telematics. Mm. But telematics is a difficult word that consumers by and large really don't understand. <laughs> right. And so essentially think about it as your, your car has a data plan. And those clearly come with a lot of new services, a lot of new features, and uh, a lot of data transmission capabilities. So, you know, uh, uh, my desire and what I wanted to do with vehicle privacy support is to create transparency. Look, I, I, mm-hmm. I think that people should be making choices based on knowledge. And once they have the knowledge and there's transparency around it, they should be able to make whatever choice they want, right? What I think is private may be different than what you think is private, and you and I may be choosing very different vehicles, Okay. You may value having the latest and greatest features, and maybe I don't, or vice versa, right? And that's okay. I, I, I think that what is what was missing is that consumers were they, they, they were in a thick fog. Sure. And, and not only consumers, but you know, we did a test with uh, dealerships. We sent consumers to their stores, and we asked them to explain some very basic facts. Can my car collect data? Can my car share data? Only one out of 20 sales associates correctly represented the truth about these super basic facts. That does not surprise me at all. Again, I don't attribute any malice to it. I think people say a lot of bad things about dealers. I I don't think there was really any malice. I think that just like the average consumer, they had no idea. Right. It was lack of information, right? And then once you start to ask more difficult questions, or especially you tell them, hey, I test drove two cars. Can you tell me the differences? You know, which one collects biometrics or not? Can you guess how many salespeople can accurately respond to that question? <laughs> right. We, right. We visited 150 stores. The answer was zero. I think maybe there are a handful of people that will be able to do that, but I severely doubt it, right? And so what we wanted to do is how can I, as a shopper, punch in my VIN and know at least at a high level what is it that I'm signing up for? And again, once you understand it, and if you want to sign up for, I think it's totally cool. All right, so let's let's talk about the tool. Uh, tell me 
how I use the tool, where I find this tool, what information it tells me. Because I, I absolutely agree. I think transparency is the first step. Because until then, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, let the invisible hand of the market work. You know, let the, let the better person win. And you don't know who that is if you can't compare products A and B. Well, the hand of the market is behind the back because everybody, <laughs> you know, can't see and can't hear anything, right? I mean, you're completely blind to the whole situation, right? So right. my hope is that the invisible hand of the market now actually has a chance. Correct. So tell us about the tool. How do I find it? What does it do? And what does it tell me? So the tool is called Vehicle Privacy Report. And so it's very easy. It's vehiclepravacyreport.com. So, you know, just to make it simple, simple and easy. And if consumers go there, they just need to punch in their VIN. And this is going to tell them, of course, what vehicle it is. Uh, we're going to try to explain to them in the most simplest terms, the, the things we were talking about before. Is my car a smartphone on wheels, a hard drive on wheels, or whatever in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Uh, the, if you go on the website, you will see there's uh, a lot of info buttons. You know those little circles with the little eye? Yes. There's a lot of them, because what we wanted to do was create essentially a giant layered education tool. You can just glance at it and have a quick picture of, okay, I understand. My car is like a smartphone on wheels. I understand my dealership deleted the data from it five days ago because they're a good dealer or they haven't done anything. And, you know, okay, so how do I find good dealers in my area? And what data does the manufacturer says that the vehicle collects and who do they share it and sell it to? And all of those buttons are, again, clickable. There's quotes. There's info buttons. You can dig into your level of pleasure and desire or you can just glance at it. And with 10 icons, we try to tell you a story of, you know, the, the highest level possible summary of something otherwise would take you an average of two and a half hours of legalese. Hmm. Well, I ran that report on, I have two cars in my family, uh-huh. one that's mine, that's 2015, and one that's my daughter's, that's 2014. Uh, I've got a Honda, she's got a Chevy, and it turns out that her one year, her car that's one year older than mine was a cell phone on wheels, but mine was a hard drive on wheels. So apparently Hondas didn't, have, at least my line of Hondas didn't have the cell phones on them yet. But the other thing I thought was interesting is that, and this would have been, this alone would save me hours of probably effort, is you collected all the privacy policies and all the documentation associated with that vehicle right there, which, you know, just right there for download. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I'm sure I could try to Google it, but I'm sure a lot of those documents are difficult to find. Yeah, typically if you go to the website of the manufacturer, the main privacy policy and the main terms of services will be linked at the very bottom of the page, as is customary. Um, mm-hmm. What most people may not realize is that your car, typically you actually need to add other documents. If you're an owner of the vehicle, there's another privacy policy and another hmm. terms of service for the owners. There's a, typically if you sign up for connected services, which again, you may just do it without realizing it when you buy the vehicle, there's another set of policies because the connected services are regulated differently. Oh, and by the way, if you download the app, that comes also with its own set of privacy policies, right? So, uh, right now, what we're doing in this first version, and it is a first version, we already have, you know, a lot of things in mind for version two and three and four and five. Um, <laughs> but the first version, what we're focusing on is again, you know, one, synthesize this smartphone on wheels, smartphone on wheels, or whatever else it is, right? Two is this history of has anybody done anything, any business done anything to protect your privacy? And who are those people, right? Because I think that again, our incentive, our desire, is to create an incentive for companies to so that this invisible hand of the market works. If you don't know who the good people are, 
how do you reward them with your business? So we are entirely trying to take an entire ecosystem and convince them that privacy is a good thing. So we're trying to make it, when somebody does something good, we want to tell everybody. And then this, you know, this, this privacy label. But I can tell you that, you know, we already have, for instance, the, the, the mobile apps, right? That you were mentioning. Uh, how do I know which are the mobile apps? You know, believe it or not, if you go and punch in the, your, your mobile app, you know, your, your, the car, the name of your car in the mobile store, you may be getting apps that are not from the manufacturers, or you may not be mm-hmm. finding the ones from the manufacturers. And also there, you know, the, how do you know exactly what it is that those apps do and what is a, what is a structured way to compare them? Again, we have done all the work. It's next version. So, you know, we're going to release that. We're going to release a number of, you know, other features that are in your car. Does your car has, we were talking before about, you know, Apple CarPlay and or Android Auto. One, both. What are the implications of those? Yeah. Um, right. And so the idea is eventually to build an entire tree, if you think about it, right, of all the different places that collect the data and share it and roll it up from the bottom so that you as a consumer, you can have a bird's eye view and you can decide to dig in if you choose to or just, you know, be happy with what it is. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's the mission is to create very broad transparency. Well, I'll give you my feature request right here on the air, and that is, uh, have you ever heard of the terms of service didn't read? It's like TLR, it's like TLDR. They, they, yeah. This company goes through a lot of famous, a lot of the big name companies. It goes through and like distills their terms of service into like easily digestible red, green, yellow, or, you know, like nutrition label kind of stuff. I'd love to see it. Like if I'm buying a car, I'd like to be able to go and see, well, which manufacturers are better than others and may, or maybe at least have some sort of graphics I can compare. Well, you know, Toyota does a lot better job with privacy than Chevy or, or whatever, you know, so I could kind of, as I'm shopping for a car, I'd love to see that. Well, so we are the, again, the bigger privacy report. So that also people, because people always ask me, how do you plan to make money on this? If you're giving it away mm-hmm. to consumers, right? And I have two answers to that, right? One is, there actually is a business model to it, which is we want to make this accessible to consumers, so we're giving it away for free. But we think that dealerships, for instance, may want to make those disclosures available on their website. Yeah. And so, you know, they can license the content very cheaply. And now when you browse on your local dealership, some of them will start to put this content on their website, which hopefully will make them more trustworthy than their competitors, right? The other answer is that Frankly, we, this is one of the things that, uh, that I guess entrepreneurs do, which is that we actually didn't have a line item in the budget for this. We just launched it because we thought it was right. And, you know, I, frankly, this has been overwhelming for me in terms of the response that we got from, from media. I mean, we're, I'm delighted to be on your show today. We're super happy that people have showed interest. Consumers, we literally have. Thousands of people every day that come to Vehicle Privacy Report and they go through the trouble of punching in a bit. That's not a small task to ask of people. If I ask you to type in your name and email address so you can enter a sweepstake, you know that, you know, by heart. Your VIN? You know, you need right. to, you know, where's my VIN, right? Oh, I need to go um, find the paperwork of my car. And then it's 17 digits longs and it's gibberish, right? Because it doesn't, you know, it's letters and numbers, right? right? right, right. So, you know, maybe I missed up it a couple of times, but people are doing it by the thousands. I, I, I think it's, I hoped that consumers would care. 
Now I know that they do. Because if they're going through this incredible amount of effort we're asking them to do, it shows that actually they're really curious to know what's going on with their vehicle. That's great. And if you think about it, I mean, it is the most expensive depreciable device or asset or anything that you will buy other than a house, right, that consumers own. Yeah. And how surprising is it that, uh, I think we were saying before, people are upset that uh, when Facebook takes your data, but I think that at least intuitively now, almost all Americans should have understood that if you're not paying for the product, you're using your time and your data essentially is what pays for the whole shebang, right? The old right. adage in, in Silicon Valley is if you're not paying, you're the product, right? Right. But, you know, nowadays the average new car is $50,000. Right. And, you know, I, I, I think that what we're seeing here, and especially from the comments when people we can take the extra effort of actually reaching out and telling us what they think is that there's, there's a lot of outrage. If I'm writing a $750 check every month for my, which is the average car payment today for new cars, it's $750 a month. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And to, you know, to understand that your data is still being taken out and you had no idea, many folks find it upsetting. <laughs> As well, they should. Yes. Yeah, it just never ceases to amaze me how, how these companies just believe that we just would be indifferent to being monetized. I mean, I think that they're counting on us not knowing, which is exactly why tools like this are so important. Well, and again, if you if you know that this is happening, if you agree to serve it, like I, I think that that's fine, right? Privacy is not I'm living in a cave or under a rock. Privacy <laughs> is I knew what data was going to be taken from me. I agreed on how I was going to be using it that was going to be used, and that's actually what happened. And by the way, if I want to change my mind, I can do that, right? Going back yeah. to your opt-out. So it really is about transparency and choice. And, yeah. you know, I think if, uh, if anything takes anything away from this interview is that they were both fundamentally broken. We're still working on the choice parts. Uh, we have a lot of fun experiments going on. And again, I hope that some of your audience will go and click on that button on the website to, you know, of privacyforcars.com and say, assert your right and let us, let us have a go with it because it, it helps. But at least I think we're starting to fix transparency, which is, I, I think it's important. I, I always tell people, I don't, I, I don't run a company. I have, a, I have a mission. Yeah. I, I, I feel really good about this past week. Well, and, and again, you've, you've got to be informed before you, before you can make a decision. I mean, so it, informed consumers, informed citizens, it's important. And that's why transparency is key. And so I, I completely 100% agree. All right, last question before we go. Now that you've got this wonderful tool out, and now that you're starting to get some feedback on this, and you're surprised about the results, maybe, what, is, what does that mean for what's next? Like, what do you, what do you want to do with the tool? What, what is version 2.0 going to look like? And just in general, what's next for privacy for cars? Yeah, so for consumers, we're going to keep providing more and more information. We spend a lot of time on UX, uh, user, you know, user experience to think of what's the simplest way we can present some cars that frankly are pretty complex, right? Mm -hmm. So we will keep pushing on that and show more and more information a way that is digestible, easy to understand and easy to act upon for consumers. The other part is again, I, if I have any hope of solving privacy for vehicles, is going to be because companies will understand that there are great advantages to turn privacy from something ugly and risky that the lawyers deal with 
into a value proposition. And there are some wonderful precedents in the automotive industry, right? The two ones that I think everybody has in their mind is a generation ago, people couldn't go to a lot and understand which of the car was safest. And it was not until the first crash test came out that consumers started asking questions and a lot of brands and a lot of companies became very successful because they embraced it, because they understood that safety was not just important, because I think people understand it. Safety, of course, safety is important. But if it's not visible, then the invisible hand of the market is not doing anything, right? And so right. once they embraced it, they turned it into a value proposition. The other big example is, you know, the vehicle history reports. I was probably 10, 15 years ago when it was still hard to get one. And then it became, you know, very easy. And then it became popularized. And people learned that when they go to the dealership, they should be asking for an independent third party's report that tells them, did anything funky happen with this car? Right. Right. So again, there are lots of presence specifically in automotive. There are many outside of automotive. My hope is that we just follow the same blueprint. If we make it visible, hopefully, Anybody, manufacturers, banks that finance vehicles, insurance companies, et cetera, will find a niche large enough in the market of people who care, people like in your audience, and will start to say, well, what if we became the Apple of the car manufacturers, right? I mean, Apple spends yeah. $2 billion a year to tell, you know, privacy, that's iPhone. Now, you may agree or disagree with the statement, but, you know, I think that Apple is probably doing a lot better than many other companies. And... There is no equivalent in automotive. But what if your auto finance companies became, you know, we're the Apple of the banks. You want to finance a car, you want to have privacy. We're not going to collect data from, you know, the telemaxes of your car. We're not going to factor it in into our loan process. Some people may choose they actually they want that. Some people will choose that they don't want that. And that's fine. Again, it's choice. It's important. But at least it's an informed decision, right? That's right. Andrea, that was really, really fascinating. Thank you so much. And thank you for creating that tool. That is very cool. Obviously, I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well as to your website so people can check it out. I highly recommend that you do. There's some great information there. Thanks again for coming on the show. Kerry, you're my hero. Thank you very much for spreading the word. Thank you. Please check it out. Uh, Vehicle Privacy Report. So glad we got Andrea back on the show. That I just find this subject fascinating, and I think that most people just don't realize, probably don't even think about what's going on with their car and how much data is being collected and who it might be shared with. And now that they're all on the internet, the, the fact that it's being shared all the time. Just since this interview, I've seen the vehicle privacy report pop up in several media articles, which is great, uh, like USA Today, Boston Globe, Kim Commando mentioned it in one of her columns, and even more places. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to see that's getting the attention it deserves. And you should absolutely check out this tool, try it out, run it on your car, any cars in your family, just to get a sense of what's going on. Now, you might wonder, how can I find the VIN of my car, the vehicle identification number, also sometimes called the chassis number? Well, there's actually several places you could find this and entering that number or copying that number is not as painful as you might think. So first of all, if you have the vehicle, if you want to look at a vehicle, the VIN number is usually just at the base of the windshield right in front of the driver. You can see it from the outside. You can take a picture of it with your phone. It will also be basically on any official paperwork for the car. That could be the sticker. Maybe if you save the sticker that came with the car, or if you're looking at a, a car on the lot, that'll be on the sticker. 
Uh, if it's a car you own, it'll be on your insurance policy somewhere, probably on your insurance card. Uh, it'll be on your registration for the vehicle. Nowadays, you can access a lot of that stuff online, like you can go to your uh, insurance company's online portal uh, or go to your state's vehicle registration, and that way you could find the text on a web page and easily copy it from there. But if you take a picture of it or you scan it, especially if you're on a Mac, Macs now have the capability of copying and pasting characters from an image, which is really handy. So that'll save you the trouble of trying to you know, manually transcribe it from an image. Just check it carefully though when you do it though, because the the scanning isn't always perfect, especially if the picture is kind of blurry or something. Uh, double check the number, but get your VIN and enter it into that thing and and check out the report. It's it's really cool. Now, if you're trying to figure out if you're in the market for a new car or a used car for that matter, uh, obviously if it's a used vehicle, you could just enter the VIN of that vehicle and you'll get the information about that particular car. If you're looking for a new car, then it really shouldn't matter which one of the vehicles you want to buy because they're all new. So they really shouldn't have any history, though it's probably worth checking. But if you just wanted to check around, find the VIN of uh, the make, model, and year of the, the car you're looking at. Any VIN from any of any of those vehicles should have the same basic privacy report in terms of privacy policy and, and things like that. Because at that point, there shouldn't be any history. But, I mean, before you actually buy a particular vehicle, I would certainly run the VIN of the car that you're looking to buy, even if it's new. Uh, and there might be some surprises there. So make sure you check that out for sure. As I said in the interview, I recently did this for the two cars that were in my family, the car I owned and the one for my daughter. And just looking at the report when it was done, it said, you know, like I said in the interview, my car was what they call a hard drive on wheels, which is to say that it collects data, but it has no cellular modem. Because my old car that I just sold was from 2015, and it didn't have a, a built-in cellular modem back then. I guarantee any car you buy today is going to have one but has this nice little visual report with these 10 icons that tell me, you know, what kind of information my car collects and whether or not that data is shared or sold to somebody else and collects all the documents for my, for my car right there. It's really, really cool. So anyway, that's vehiclepricereport.com. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. And really quickly, the other thing that Andrea talked about was asserting your rights. And this allows you to actually deputize Andrea's company to act on your behalf as an agent to go and try to make sure that any data you had on a previous car that you may have rented or sold uh, or totaled in an accident or whatever, some car you no longer have possession of, but may have some of your data on it and allow them to follow up on that car and make sure that any data associated with that car has been deleted. So again, if you go to privacyforcars.com and look at the upper right, I believe you'll find the, the button for that and you can walk through the process from there. All right, we're already running along today. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. Next week, we'll have a news show as usual and some other great interviews coming on the pike. Subscribe to the podcast now so you won't miss any of that. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up this summer. All right, that's a little do it for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.